Thank you, uh, JJ, for reading the scriptures. That is our text for this morning. If you want to keep uh, your finger there in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20, uh, Miranda McKenna, uh, you almost destroyed me with that song. <laughs> I started to lose it in that first line. Uh, such a good, good song that really coincides well with the text uh, this morning. We're going to talk about some difficult things. But really, James has been leading up to this point from the very beginning of chapter 1. All of James' topics to this point are really funneling themselves into the last seven or eight verses of this book. We are told in chapter 1 how to view trials. And when we pray, we should ask for wisdom. Chapter 2 addresses the sin of partiality that no one of us are better than the other. We are all equal in the eyes of the Lord, but we don't get on board with that. In chapter 2, he goes on to talk about faith and works and the relationship between the two. Chapters 4 and 5 deal with warnings against worldliness and warnings for the rich. And in our concluding section, it's fitting because it really encapsulates five serious phases of Christian life. So all of James' topics really funnel into what we're going to discuss this morning. As we conclude our sermon series on the book of James, we are introduced to five different phases of life. And without a doubt, I believe that each and every one of us will have some experience or touch on each and every one of these phases eventually if you have not already. Let me give you those five so you can go ahead and write them down. Phase, phase of life number one, suffering. Phase of life number two, celebration or cheerfulness. We did a lot of that on Thursday, I hope. Number three, sickness. Number four, season of life, number four, confession. And finally, season of life, number five, restoration or reclamation, reclaiming back an individual. But before we get into our text, again, let's have a word of prayer. God, I ask that you would move in our midst this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit that none of us would leave this room unchanged. Not because of the speaker or because of a airtight service where everything seems to go according to plan, but because there's a great God in heaven that loves us way too much to leave us where we're at. And God, I ask for your, your help. This is a difficult text. I ask that you would just... Fill me with your spirit as we move through these points, that we would see your glory, especially as it relates to the glory of Christ and the gospel. Pray that we would lay hold of these five phases of life and realize that maybe we have one foot in one phase and a foot in another and and here comes another phase, and we, don't, we really don't know if we can handle much more, but we know that, God, we, we want to cast all our cares upon you because you love us, you care for us. And so as we work through this text, God, we ask that you would move. We love you so much. Thank you for loving us first in Christ Jesus, and in his name we pray. Amen. So phase of life number one, 
It's right there in verse 13 if you want to look again. Phase of life, number one, times of suffering. And the question that James asks, is any among you suffering, let him pray. The word suffering in this verse is is quite broad, actually. This can mean any type of unpleasant and unexpected experience. This could be something as simple as a flat tire or an unexpected diagnosis. It might be in an unpleasant discussion that you had this morning, or it might be an unpleasant discussion between family members, or it could just be outright abandonment by somebody that you love, somebody that you relied on, someone you trusted, and now, for whatever reason, despite wanting them to be in your life, they're no longer there for you. But James says, and really, he brings our focus into laser-sharp clarity. He says, if any of you are experiencing any kind of discomfort whatsoever, he says, let him pray. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. The issue as fallen creatures that we are who still battle sin is that our first inclination is not this. We don't always, uh, our default is not always to pray. We perhaps will go to speak to somebody for counsel. We'll pick up the phone and call a friend to talk about our experiences. But the last thing on our mind many times, and much to our shame, is that we don't take those uncomfortable experiences to God. Perhaps we put together a step-by-step plan on paper on how to address our problem. You know, a, a, a do and don't list, a pros and cons list. Perhaps we hang on every word of our doctors to give us answers to our diagnosis. We question how long do we have left in this world. We question our prognosis. But James says first, if you are experiencing any suffering at all, let your default, let the first thing come to your mind be, let us pray. Let us pray. Many years ago, I was probably 17 or 18 years old, I had just started coming to this church. I was invited by a friend. And uh, it was, you know, it was really, it was still really cool to drive from home to church. And, you know, driving was a big deal. Now you just kind of do it. And it's just, a, it's just an extra, one of those things you do as, a, as an adult. You don't really get excited about it anymore. But my friend and I, my friend Matthew and I, we would take turns driving to church. And I remember I stayed over one fr- uh, Saturday night and uh, we woke up the next morning, got ready for church, and, and it was his turn to drive, and, and he started looking for his car keys, and couldn't find the car keys anywhere. And I remember him yelling down the hallway to his mom, Mom, have you seen my car keys? I can't find my car keys. And, and it, it just stuck with me. And, you know, I, I grew up in a home where we didn't talk like this, so this story really resonated with me, and it, it just always comes to my mind when I'm thinking about prayer. I remember uh, Matthew's mom calling back down the hallway, did you pray about it? And I was thinking, well, how silly is that? This, you know, it's, a, it's a pair of, or a set of car keys. You'll eventually find it, right? You know, you're relying on your own uh, strength and wherewithal to find them. Who, who prays about that? But my friends, whether it's your car keys or whether it's sickness or any type of suffering whatsoever, the whole spectrum, James says your first thing you ought to do is get on your knees and pray. 
And I remember Matt yelling down the hallway, well, no, I didn't. And then he disappeared, and I, I assumed that he did actually pray for it because we eventually found the car keys and went to church. But this phrase, let him pray, is a, is a little weaker in, the, in this language, this English language. The, the verse can actually be translated into this, you must pray. You have no choice in the matter. James is saying this is an absolute necessity under any suffering whatsoever. You must pray. But you know what? Your, your enemies, your greatest enemies, don't, do not want you to do this. Your old nature before salvation still tries to speak lies into your life to try to convince you that you don't need God in this time through your own personal experience or your own ingenuity or rallying around some uh, friends. You could, you could figure this out. You don't need to pray. Consumerism and political pundits, social media, everything in the world is trying to keep you distracted from this thing called prayer. You might say, if I can just get the next big thing or the next big device, or if I can just fix my relationship with my family, I can figure out the right words to say, and, and, and you just go to the end of yourself for hours and days on end, but never have any thought to pray. And really what it boils down to is that we have this pride about ourselves, that we, we want to rule this, this life. We want to have the control that we uh, so desperately want. But, but God's saying through, the, through James, you must pray. Stop what you're doing and pray. We're prone to be self-dependent, but what James is saying is be God-dependent. We're prone to be distracted, but James is saying be prayerful. This should come to no surprise to any one of us if you've been in this series with us. James 1, verses 2 to 5, you don't have to, to go there, but it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And here's the key point of this verse I want to draw out that connects with what we're speaking about this morning. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. It doesn't say that you'll get a solution. It just says when you come to God and ask for help and direction, what does God give you? He gives you wisdom. And I love that next part just after that, that comma there in James 1 uh, verse 4. It says God gives generously. He's the one who will answer. Our responsibility is much like the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 through 7, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And so often we want to hold on to that care. We were not willing to give it up. But Peter says, cast it at the feet of Jesus because he loves you. Now, this is not a guilt trip at the beginning. I'm not trying to guilt anybody to uh, increasing their prayers. And if you just do it three times a day, you'll be all right. Uh, that's not it at all. What I'm asking you to do is enjoy time with the Lord. He wants to spend time with you. He wants to hear your voice. He wants you to be dependent on him. Come to him. You must pray in times of suffering.
Phase of life number two. There are times of suffering. James says that we must pray. Phase of life number two is times of cheerfulness or celebration. He asks in verse 13, if you look, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. I think this past Thursday, many of us did this pretty well. Thanksgiving Day is a time of reflecting on everything that God has done in our lives, from testimonies of salvation to providing for that financial need that we have been praying so desperately for, to maybe somebody being raised up and been brought well physically. But I think cheerfulness actually can be a trap for many of us. When everything is going my way, you know, I tend to smile more, I, I laugh so much more, I think. I think when things are going my way, I'm more prone to pick up the phone and say, hey, you want to go out? Let's, let's go hang out somewhere. Let's catch the game. You know, let's, let's spend some time just hanging out. But you know what? The danger is that when everything seems to go our way, we're much more prone to forget God. In times of relative peace, we are prone to become less dependent and less prayerful. Just read the book of Judges. You guys remember the book of Judges where uh, God would raise up an individual, rescue the people of Israel, and in times of relative peace, what would the text of Scripture say? Something to the effect that they would forget about God, and then they would fall back into their sin, and God would raise up another individual to rescue the people. You know, in times of relative peace, we're prone to forget to pray. We're prone to forget to read our Bibles These times of cheerfulness are actually opportunities. They're opportunities for for us to acknowledge once again that if there's any positive progress being made in anything in the church or in our personal lives, it's all because God does it himself. When I get a promotion or a raise, God does that. It's not because I'm smarter than the other guy who was interviewing for the job. When there's a positive answer in my journey towards physical wellness, God does that. When there is a restored relationship between husband and wife, between uh, brother and sister, between any other relationship that you can imagine, God does that. When a child is born, God brings that child into the world. When a man and woman are married and they say in their vows, I will commit to be with you for the rest of my life in sickness and in health. And when that actually is carried out and accomplished, some of you are celebrating 45, 50, 60 years of marriage and you look back, is that because, well, you know, we were just the right, we were just so right for each other, it just worked out that way. No, God does that. When a wayward son or daughter comes home and gets right with God, God does that. Everything that's worthy to be cheerful for is because God accomplishes it. And what does James say to do in response? Look back in verse 13. Let him sing praise. People wonder, why are you singing songs on Sunday morning? Why is it in your car Monday through Saturday? Why do you sing songs so much? Because God does so much. And it's no surprise that the, the word let him sing praise is, should be translated just like the last let him that we were looking at. It says you must sing praise. 
You think about how was it this week when you were being thankful at the dinner table? Was it out of a heart of thanksgiving towards God or was it kind of arms folded and you, you kind of look at the, the kingdom that you set up for yourself kind of like um, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. Look at everything that I established for me, for myself. Oh, do not forget God in times of peace. Praise his name. Don't forget God in times of relative ease. So phase of life, number one, is suffering. Phase of life, number two, there's times for cheerfulness and celebration. And one more thing about that. You notice there's a spectrum there of suffering and cheerfulness. And I think what James is trying to drive at is that anything in that spectrum, what do you do? You praise God. You pray to God. You go to God. Now, phase of life, uh, number three, and this, is, this has been very, very difficult for me. Ask, ask my wife, and she asked, hey, what are you doing? Nine times out of ten over the last three or four weeks, it's, oh, I'm, I'm in <laughs> James uh, chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. <laughs> it's a very difficult passage. But phase of life, number three, is times of sickness. Did you hear the prayer requests this morning? The updates? We have a lot of this right now. We have a lot of this. Let's read it again together in verse 14 and 15. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let, him, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven him. So how sick is this person? If you look at the text again, the elders are called to a sick one's home. This perhaps uh, implies that the sick person is unable to leave his or her residence. When the elders arrive, the elders are shown as praying over the sick person, perhaps meaning that the ill person is bedridden. And the elders are also doing all the praying. You notice that? The person's probably unable to speak. This is a very serious, serious situation. The person might be at a loss for words. Maybe that's why the elders are doing all the praying. But what kind of sickness are we actually dealing with? The actual type of illness is unknown. We don't know exactly what has caused this person to be bedridden. But James uses two different Greek words for sickness here. And the general idea when you take the two together is that this person is suffering from at least three different issues. A physical illness of some type, a weariness of mind, and a weariness of soul. And this might suggest that this person's physical condition has progressively worsened over time, leading to discouragement and grief. In other words, this person is having an incredibly rough time for a very long time. Their illness has lasted for so long that they're weary of mind and soul, like a long, drawn-out war that has no end in sight. Turn on the news. You can find some of those, right? You're just wondering, like, how is this ever going to work out? Well, this person is experiencing their own kind of war. The same Greek word is actually used in Romans 14.1. Paul says, Weak in faith. And perhaps this person is on the verge 
of saying or believing things about God that they ought not to based on their circumstances. You ever been there? Things are so rough and so terrible, it seems, that you just, you just wonder, what is God doing? Many of you can relate to this person. You're tired of the frequent visits to the doctor. You're tired of hitting another dead end in your chronic illness, and you're discouraged. Perhaps the illness prevents you from worshiping with God's people. You want to be here, but you can't be. You don't get to see your own family as often as you'd like. It affects everything you do. And this person this, that James is talking about may be on the verge of believing things about God that is just not good, is not right, not biblical. If he were good, these things would not happen to me, right? And perhaps you're here and you're wondering the same thing. You're at a loss of words to, as to what to do next. So you call the elders to visit you. You ask them, can something be done about what I'm going through? What can be accomplished through the elders' visit? What can God accomplish through the elders' visit? Now, if you look again at verse 14, we find uh, what the elders are involved in when they visit. Verse 14 says, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. I want to highlight that word anointing first. What does that mean? Now, a number of passages that mention an anointing in some sort of way um, kind of cue us in on what's going on here. I don't believe this is medicinal. I don't believe that the elders somehow have to uh, be doctors when they go visit. I don't believe that's what's happening. But what I, I think this is a symbolic gesture to say something. And I think we find that something in a few of Old Testament texts, and, and I'll also give you a New Testament text. 1 Samuel 16, 12 through 13, Samuel, the prophet Samuel, is told by God to go to a town and to search out for the God's next king of Israel. And he finds David. It's not the man that he thought it would be, but he pours oil on David as a sign and a symbol that this man, this King David, is separated by the Lord for a specific purpose. Exodus 40, 15, also we find this idea of anointing something uh, for a purpose. It's when the Levitical priests were anointed or set apart to guide and direct the services or the worship in the tabernacle and all the sacrifices. And God also instructs them to take oil and anoint the items in the tabernacle as well, to symbolize that these are not just mere artifacts. These items are dedicated to the Lord for worship and in his service. And perhaps my, my favorite example of anointing and, uh, is found in the Gospels where Mary of, of Bethany anoints Jesus with oil. And I'm not so sure whether or not Mary knew exactly what she was doing. But she anointed the Lord, and this undoubtedly had symbolism attached with it that this Christ was set apart by the Father to die for the sins of the world, to die for your sins and mine. He was set apart for a specific purpose, to glorify the Father through his mission. And finally, Jesus even says, I, I'm the anointed one in Luke 4.18, quoting Isaiah 61.1 and 2. 
So he lived into this dedication. So when I see this, when I see the sick person being anointed, what I see is that this is a sign that this person is wholly dedicated to the Lord. And this person is God's person, not anyone else. By this sign, we are saying that the person belongs to the Lord. Not only that, but we are submitting our wills to him. We are saying together that even though we do not have an answer right now, we know one thing for sure, that the person that's lying in this bed sick belongs to the Lord, and nobody can change that. Have you ever thought that when you're laying out, laid out in bed, just meditating, that like, you know what, no matter what happens to me, God owns me. He'll take care of me. I don't understand what's going on right now, but he's got me, and he will not let me go. Isn't that the whole point of Romans 8? That nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Well, here we have a sign of that same gesture. The second thing that I see going on here in the text uh, that the elders are tasked to do is that they pray in faith. Now, there's a lot of divergent points or opinions as to how uh, exactly this prayer Uh, should be interpreted, but this is where I have landed. This is a prayer that issues from a position of faith. You've got a group of men that come to your home, lay hands on you, anoint you with oil, and they are full of faith, believing that God is who he says he is, that God can do whatever he wants to do. Here we have an example of of church leadership praying boldly, They have laid hold of verses like Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where you come boldly to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. This is not a prayer of doubt, especially doubting the character of God. The elder's prayer includes the belief that God can do the unexpected. If it's God's will, he can heal whatever he wants to heal. God can raise up anyone he chooses to raise up. He is sovereign in every respect to every situation. And this illness is not outside the boundaries of that. Every sickness must submit its will to God if God chooses to speak. Let me say that again. Any sickness must submit itself to God if God chooses to heal, to speak. God can provide the means to which a person is healed from disease. He could provide medicine to cure. Or he can provide healing that is inexplicable. Nobody can figure it out. We just know that this person's raised up. Isn't that incredible? God has the prerogative and he can do that if he wants to. So whether God heals by means of medicine or whether God heals through unexplained means, God was, is within his right to choose to heal however he wants to. And it's always in response to prayer. Isn't that wonderful? God, you know, going back to Romans 8 again, God can, he knows the groanings that we groan. He can interpret that by the Holy Spirit. He can interpret all of those groans that you feel when you're sick and you're laid out. He knows what that means. And he can answer prayers. Christians, uh, we just don't think in these terms. We, we really don't. Perhaps because we think death is so far in the future, we don't, we don't pray um, right away like we ought to. 
then God's answer might be, maybe to allow the sickness to remove us from this life. That has to be an option. God does not always respond to prayers in that way. He may take us home to glory, and that's okay. But what I think that we need to point out in this prayer is that when an elder or with anybody for that matter prays over someone, please pray that God's sovereign will would be done because it will. Pray God's sovereignty over the situation. God is in complete control. Also, pray that God's wisdom would reign, that we don't have all the answers. We need God to give us answers, to show us what to do, show us how to think, show us how to live. And the, the elder's prayer, and anyone's prayer for that matter, should include the gospel. That this, this sickness of this person in bed That sickness does not ultimately define who that person is. The gospel defines the person. The person knows Christ, and that prayer should be full of the gospel, full of what Christ has done for that person, rescuing that person from their sins, setting them on a path to being free from sin, free from illness forever, and God's glory forever one day. The elders' prayer should also include submission to God's timing. If you look at the text, it says, will raise up, will be saved, but it doesn't say when. We want, usually we want things right now, right? That's just our culture. But God does not give us the when in this text. Sometimes we wait. But my friends, we wait with the Lord. He's by our side. Ugh. That he would press that upon my mind. That's one of my greatest prayers. That if my time comes, would he press that upon my mind? As long as I have God, anything else is extra. Now third, the text says, what what else does the the text say in this little, uh, these two verses here in 14 and 15? It says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Again, different opinions as to how this should be interpreted. But I believe that the result of a prayer which issues from faith, says James, is that this prayer of faith will save the one who's sick and the Lord will raise him up. This person's illness may take time to heal. It may be many days or even years, but perhaps the illness may not be need, to, need to be healed at all. But what we have here are two promises of God who does not lie. And the promise is that the prayer of faith will save and the promise of raising up. And I think the primary war that I see being waged in this moment is not a war of physical illness, but a war of spiritual warfare. This person is so discouraged by the way the illness has gone that they are spiritually weary, perhaps on the verge of believing some false ideas about God and his character. And their soul is so heavy. They are weak in faith. They are perhaps discouraged beyond anything they have ever thought possible. And here, in their last-ditch effort, they ask the elders, will you come and anoint me with oil? Will you pray over me? And my friends, God can answer a prayer for the soul of a person, for the mind of a person, that that would be raised up, that that would be saved, that that aspect of an individual would be so 
engulfed by the gospel, engulfed with godly biblical truth, that a person in that way is raised up and saved. That no matter what comes my way, like Job, he says, though God slay me, yet will I trust in him. Do you think that Job got to that point by his own ingenuity? No, God pressed upon his mind and his spirit that even if I were to take your life, you're going to come home with me. I've got you. I believe that's what's going on here. As a hospital chaplain, the goal of every one of my visits is to wage this war. As many times, you know, we do have people that get better. But my main goal in, in visiting with some of y'all and some of the people that I visit on, on the, in hospice, my main goal is to, to inquire about the heart of a person. What's going on in his heart? Can God raise that up from discouragement? Can God raise that to see things as God sees them? That's my prayer. I've seen the Spirit of God move in these ways. When I visit my patients or when I visit some of you guys, on what's, I see the Spirit of God moving this way. Now, on one such occasion, I, I remember I was sitting on the front porch with a patient uh, one afternoon, and, and the man was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And the crazy part about it is that clean bill of health in, in every other respect, not even a smoker, mind you. Some people automatically gravitate towards that, that, well, you have COPD or you have lung issues or lung cancer because, you know, you, you were a smoker, but not this guy. No, there was no explanation as to why he was diagnosed with this disease. You know, I remember sitting on the front porch with him, and, and I would ask him questions on every visit. Hey, how's your conversations with God since I last saw you? Or how are you and God today? And his response, I will never forget his response. You know, some, some people just, they, they give you a gift when they, when they respond in, the, in these so wonderfully rich, gospel-filled ways. Here's one of them. He said, Chase, I want you to know my body is riddled with cancer. I don't know when I'm going to go see Jesus. But you know what, Chase? My life is riddled with God's grace. He had so spent time with the Lord and made it a priority of praying that God so moved on his mind and his spirit that said, no matter what, even if you take my life, God, I'm going to trust in you and I'm going to be with you. That is what I think the text is speaking of right now. That's the kind of saving and the raising up that I would want if it were my time. And I'll tell you right now, if this were me, if I was the one to be diagnosed with a life-altering, life-limiting, and possibly terminal diagnosis, I pray that God's Holy Spirit would move upon me in this way. Sure, I'd like to get better, but sometimes illness is just so severe that it will not happen. It is your time. So what I would do, I would ask Pastor Robert Horn, Pastor Graziano, Pastor Jerry, and Pastor Matt, come over to my place. You know what I'd ask them? Will you pray over me? Will you anoint me? Will you surround my bed, brothers? Take as much time as you want. There is no rush. This is the best thing that we could do right now. Will you pray the gospel over me? Will you pray God's sovereignty over my life? Will you pray 
a sovereign eschatological prayer, meaning the end is near? Will you pray in terms that even despite this illness, God will raise you up and God will save you and God will bring you home? Will you do that for me? And I know they would. That's the only way that any one of us can possibly ever drown out the evil one's lies is that we would be men and women of prayer. So three phases. Phase of life, number one, suffering, pray. Phase of life, two, cheerfulness, you praise. Phase of life, number three, sickness, you pray. You ask people to pray over you. The hope is that God will work in such a miraculous way that you'll see things through the lenses of God. And finally, in this season of sickness uh, that we're discussing, this third phase, we have to highlight that, that if word. Verse 15 says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. There is an investigative process when elders visit you in your homes. There is a, a time when you will talk with them and, and, and just lay it all out there, bear your soul to them, and it may come out that there is sin in the life of the person being sick, and the Bible's pretty clear. 1 Corinthians 11, Psalm 32, there are places in the scriptures that say that someone could lay hold of sin to such a degree and not let it go that you can actually become sick. God will allow sickness to come into your life to wake you up. And here in our text in verse 15 says, if that is a reality in the life of the one who is sick, the good news of the gospel is you can have forgiveness and you can be restored. That's the best news of all. That is the best news of all. So phase of life number four, this kind of leads right into the next phase of life, and that's confession. Read it again with me in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. My friends, in order to be a biblical, healthy church, confession has to be a part of what we do here. And I'm not talking about, you know, the Catholic's view of confession where you get, a, get alone in a booth and you just, you know, tell, tell the, the priest how long has it been since you confessed your sins. We have one mediator. There's one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. But here we see a community of faith getting together and saying to one another, there are things I struggle with. There are things that that seem to crop up time and time again that set me back, that take me away from this path that I want to be on to follow Christ. Here they are. Will you pray for me? There may may be times where you give in to some of those temptations to sin, to do things that are contrary to the gospel. But our text says one of the ways that you can grow spiritually, yes, you take it to the Lord in prayer, but one of the ways that you can almost start to put this to death in your life is you bring brothers and sisters into your circle of friends. Maybe it's a small group. Maybe it's, it's you and somebody else in coffee. Maybe it's after this service where you bring people into your life. You bring more light into the situation And you say, I have these temptations. This is what I'm dealing with. I am fighting with every power that's within me and asking God to work. But I need you too to pray for me. You can't do the Christian life alone. 
We need each other. And here's the promise. Look again at the text. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. A person that is right with God, that as far as they can tell, they're holding on to no sin or iniquity in their life, and they come before the throne of God, and they have requests for God to work in a mighty way. The amazing part is, even though God is sovereign, and he can do whatever he wants, and he does do whatever he wants, he invites us in the text to say, I want you to work alongside me. That prayer of a righteous one who loves Jesus, that power, that there's power in that prayer. I love what Tim Keller says. He, he makes it very, the man is a, a very intelligent speaker, loves the Lord, just, he's with the Lord now, but he says in this statement, prayer makes a dent. It's hard for us to fathom. Prayer makes a dent. And here James is inviting you into the community of faith. Live into that with one another. Confess your sins towards one another. And look at the promise in verse 16. It says, you may be healed. You can't explain it, but when you, let's just say, I'll just I'll give you an experience that I've had many times. And guys, I'm going to tell you, my mouth gets me into trouble so quickly. And sometimes I'll say something and I think, why did I say that? Just ask my family. <laughs> Let's just ask my family. Ask some of my coworkers. It's so easy for me to be cynical and, 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 and say something that should not be said. And two or three times I remember going to perhaps like a friend or a coworker and, and asking for forgiveness. But the astonishing part is that there's a, a, a time between committing the act and and going to that person and asking for forgiveness where I'm trying to justify the words that I said. I'm trying to make sense. Like, well, they, they just had it coming to them. I'm, I'm just telling it like it is. Or that's the way that our business should be run around here. I try to try to convince myself that what I said was warranted. And then a couple of times now, I've, I've been almost at the front door of a patient's home and thinking... Well, how prideful are you? <laughs> You're going to go into this house and speak the gospel or try to say some encouraging words and just try to lift them up, but here you are. You're holding your sin back. And man, it, God just rakes me over the coals. And I think that's what this, ver, this word right here means. You confess your sins one to another. Pray for one another. There's healing in going and making things right with God. There's healing that can be had in making things right with brothers and sisters in the faith. There's healing there. And you know, at every single time that I've just, that the Lord has just brought things to my attention that ought to be right, and when God moves me to, to apologize and to, to say the things that need to be said, there is a weight that's lifted there. There is a type of healing that is there. There might be people right now that's struggling with something that you've said or done and you're trying to justify it right now so that you're trying to push it out of your mind so you can hear the sermon. But really, it reminds me of something Jesus said. Leave your offering at the altar. First, go get right with your brother. Then come back and worship. 
this is something that we'll all be dealing with for the rest of our lives. This phase of life, of confession, coming before the Lord, coming before other brothers and sisters, inviting people to pray for you. That is something that will be a part of your life forever. But Psalm 66, 18, let this be something that you think about in relation to this over and over again. Psalm 66, 18 says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. What a dangerous place to be. What a dangerous place to be. You know, uh, we have one illustration here that James chooses. It's kind of an odd illustration if you think about it on the surface, but James says in verse 17, if you want to read it with me, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. James, to support this call for confession within community, he uses Elijah as an example. Now, Elijah was, you know, very, very long history. There's a lot of details in his life. But James says, don't be misunderstood about who this person is. Verse 17, he says, he was a man with a nature just like us. You know, we, we, our tendency is to exalt these prophets on some different level than us. But here's a man that, just like you and me, Jesus needed to come to die for that man's sins. He had a struggle just like me and you, a sin nature. He probably shot off at the mouth when he shouldn't have, just like me. But... Here's what James says is a characteristic of his life. Despite all of the same things that he has in common with us, he was a man who fervently prayed. Got on his knees, begging that God would rescue Israel from her national sin. Prayed for King Ahab, a wicked man. And he even asked for something incredible. Elijah asked that the Rains would stop for three and a half years, and the Lord answered his prayer. This was in, in an effort to maybe bring about repentance in, the, in national in Israel. Maybe the king would see that answered prayer and, and the lack of water and, and, and respond in a positive way, see that God is sovereign and God is king, and turn and repent and become right with God. And then three and a half years later, Elijah prays again. That's not that he didn't pray for three and a half years at all, but that he prayed again and asked God to give rain. And look at the text at the end of verse 18. It said, the earth bore its fruit. There's a, there's a timing issue here. You know, when, when we pray we, again, we want things to go according to our plan. We want things to pan out when we want it. But you notice that there's a time period of three and a half years of no rain, and then three and a half more years, and then there's fruit, James says. There may be a time when God does not allow fruit to be seen for many, many years. But timing is not our prerogative. What is our prerogative? To remain fervent in prayer. Remain fervent in prayer. So phase of life number one, 
We're all going to go through times of suffering. Phase of life number two, we're all going to go through times of cheerfulness and celebration. Phase of life number three, we're all going to go through times of sickness and illness. In phase of life number four, there are going to be times of confession. And finally, my friends, and perhaps this, this is just the scariest part of all, there will be times of restoration. There will be times where people in your life will wander from the faith. There'll be times when people in your life who claim to know Christ and are, they say that they're Christians, but for whatever reason, whether it's enamorment with the world or a different priority comes along in their life that they think is better than God or following after Christ, wandering takes place. <laughs> you know, that this ending is actually nothing like Paul. You know, when you read the ends of some of these letters that Paul writes, he says things like, hey, say hi to my friends for me, right? He says, oh, and don't forget the parchments, you know, the scrolls. Can you bring them? I need those. Uh, I'm studying for another sermon that I'm going to preach. I need those parchments, please. And, and by the way, I forgot my cloak. Could you bring that with you too? But James is so different. James ends with a warning to the church that there will be times when you and I must go after people who were wandering. This is a very somber note, but a very necessary one. And this is perhaps one of the most stunning parts of being a Christian. That I believe that God is sovereign in every aspect of salvation. I believe like Jonah when he says salvation belongs to the Lord through and through. But my friends, God wants to use you to spread the gospel to share Christ with other people and to share Christ with a wandering friend. Be on alert, church, not only for yourself, but for others. Will you do this? Will you be on alert for other people? Because if if we are to take these last two verses seriously, there are high stakes involved in seeking after others. Look at the end of the last verse of this book, verse 20. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. Again, we're not talking about physical death. Through and through, James is concerned about the heart. What is at stake when you see someone that is acting or living out out of step with the gospel? What's at stake is that if that person continues along that path, It's not that someone would lose their salvation, but they give evidences that salvation had never occurred to begin with. And so we call out to them, get on the phone, ask them to go to coffee, approach them in any way possible and say, will you come back? What I'm seeing is not in step with the gospel. And James says, a person that returns from their wandering That gives evidences that that soul is saved from death. Not only that, I want to ask you a question. Can you imagine 
Remember Pastor Robert just, just moments ago, several minutes ago, two testimonies shared this morning. Been, I think one of them said, I've been saved since 45 years ago. And another one said, I've been saved 44 years ago. Can you imagine, my friends, those that you, are, you know that you're born again, you know you're saved here this morning. Think about the person who shared the gospel with you or that time that you came to Christ, maybe in your own reading or, or listening to a sermon. You remember that, 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 that means by which God used to show you your need of salvation. Imagine if you take those means out of your life and you did not know Christ, where would you be? Where would you be if that person did not come along and say, brother, I love you so much and and what I am about to tell you might sever our relationship right now, but you got to know my Jesus. You got to know who he is. He loved you so much. He died for you. He died for your sins. And if you'll repent and trust Christ, you can be born again. You can have new life. You, could, you and I could be in, in the same spiritual family forever. And look at the text. Can you imagine if no one had come into your life to share the gospel with you? If you can imagine for a second, where would you be? If for no other reason, look at the last four or five words of this book. It says, we'll cover a multitude of sins. If God had not sovereignly put someone in your life to share the gospel with you, I have no doubt of where you and I would be. We would be living in our sins, dead in our trespasses and sins, with no hope in the world. But thank God, God did send somebody in your life to share the gospel. Thank God that somebody did get in Chase's face 23 years ago and say, you know what? You say you're a Christian, but you're not living like it. So either you are a Christian or you're not. What is it? I will never forget that conversation. But thank God it happened. We serve a great God through many phases of life. Whether it's suffering, cheerfulness, sickness, confession, or reclamation, we serve a great God that can be with us through it all. God will have the victory in all things. God will be exalted in these phases of life. God is good. In conclusion, I just want to share one perhaps humorous thing that I found in my study of James as we've been going through this as a church. You can't find a Bible verse uh, attached to this, so you can hold it loosely. But according to church tradition, James had a nickname. You guys ever heard of this? I see some of you shaking your head. James had a nickname. He was, according to church tradition, he was called Old Camel Knees. Old Camel Knees. James had such a reputation for prayer that the thing that people remembered about him was how leathery and worn out and calloused his knees were from all the praying that he did. And he wasn't trying to earn God's favor but he certainly wanted God to work in his midst. Old camel knees. There's another funny story. Uh, as I was doing my studies, um, R.C. Sproul, his, his uh, granddaughter one time came up and uh, he said, Grandpa, 
man, your face sure does look like leather. Ooh, that's embarrassing, right? And he said, well, maybe, maybe it's because I, I, I've preached so long. My face has just moved so much and tried to encourage people to, to just respond positively to the gospel. But it had reminded him, if, if God wants to turn my face that way, may it be a thousand times over that he would make my knees look like James's old camel knees. Can we commit together as a church family? Let's wear our knees together. God is going to do some amazing things in our midst. And James tells us that we can partner with the Lord in so many different ways. In so, so, many, so many different times we forget. We forget our salvation. We forget that we have an opportunity to pray. We have an opportunity to sing praises. We have so much opportunity just to enjoy God. Let's get into those those seasons of life, and lay hold of them with every fiber of our being and asking God to give us strength to do so. Let us pray. God in heaven, it's to you alone that gets glory for it all. It's to you alone belong wisdom and power and might and salvation. To the Lamb alone who was slain be glory and honor from this time forth and forevermore. God, we ask that we would not forget this wonderful letter that you have left through your servant, James. God, I remember the very beginning of this book talks about the Jewish people who are dispersed all across the world, all across the time, that world that they lived in. They faced persecution, the wealthy, uh, took advantage of the weak. There was misunderstanding of the gospel. So much work to be done. Thank you for sending your servant James to that community and just sharing these truths with them. Thank you for preserving your word for us so that we too can grow spiritually, that we can take that next step in our walk with Christ. And I ask in the Holy Spirit's name that you would not leave us alone today.